You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dee Tran. I'm Jose Solis. And we're your token theater friends. People who love theater so much that if you cut us open... You will not find cake, but but a pair of curtains. I'm I, I'm just kidding. I'm, I've been watching. You know, have have you have you been watching those uh, videos with people cutting into objects, and it turns out to be cake? I refuse to. Like people should not joke with cake. Cake is not something you joke with, like at all. No, no. As a baker, I all of those cakes look dry and low quality because fondant is. Bullshit. No, okay, now you're messing with the wrong crowd also. Fondant is amazing. Fondant is the only reason why we'll get married. Ew! Okay, I'm not eating any of your wedding cake then. Well, I'm very single, so that's never gonna happen, so don't worry. But wait, because fondant is a super thick thing that's like toothpaste, but like made yeah. out of sugar. Oh my god, I'm just gonna start yeah. salivating. I love it Ew. so much. It, you know people roll that out with their hands. Well, so they... Do with pizza, and it, I love pizza. It's like pizza. Play-Doh. Yeah, but they don't cook it. Yeah, but you, you don't, they don't cook pizza? They don't cook fondant. But I mean, it looks so pretty. Like, they can, like, make little grooms out of it. Like, two little yeah, grooms. Yeah, yeah. With their hands. I mean, if, if, you know, we're in the COVID, so if you want other people touching your food. I mean, I'm not gonna. Be my guest. I'm not gonna order a wedding cake anytime soon. So I'm not gonna worry too much about that. And also, if you open me up today, I'm also made out of margarita. Oh, shit. Oh, you didn't tell me we were drinking today. We're always drinking. I, I am not always drinking. Okay, this is how I'm getting <laughs> through quarantine. It's, I have, I, I need structure in my day. So I pretend that I'm on a regular work schedule. Our work schedule's from 10 to 6. And then after 6 is when I go, I start drinking. Okay, I drink whenever I feel hot and whenever I feel like I need a drink, so. Okay, see, the, the, well, what is it? You're like chaotic energy, and I'm like, and I'm lawful energy, I guess? I mean, I guess. Is that what the kids are saying? I don't know what the kids are saying. The kids are always talking about okay. bitic energy, though, and like, I don't know. I've been told. I've been told I have that. Okay, this is a different podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Token <laughs> Sex Therapy Friends. No, I think bitic energy is just like, you know, I, I, I give off a lot of confidence. Or like Mr. Big. Yeah, but I want to. I, I want to be Mr. Big. He sucks at communicating. Now, never date someone who doesn't know how to communicate their own feelings. Next time I ask you if it's, it's like Mr. Big, you're supposed to answer absolutely. So fucking lutely. 
Oh my god, Spotify's gonna give us an explicit again for this episode just because we did that. They gave us an explicit? Yes! Oh my god, I feel- On the Rattle Sparza episode! Oh my god, I feel very- I don't know, I feel very flattered. I think maybe because Raul, like, cussed oh, a lot. I love Raul. <laughs> so we're going to have that parental advisory thing. If we were an album, we would have that thing. A little bit, probably. I love it so much. Uh, oh, it was so counterculture. Okay. Sorry, so sorry about that. Opening, everyone. Don't eat fondant. Uh, What are we talking about today? We are discussing two audio... Are they called radio plays? Audio plays? Audio shows? Anyway. We are discussing two audio plays. First, we're going to be talking about the Richard II, that Shakespeare in the Park. Now, Shakespeare on your ears. Wait, what are they calling it? Shakespeare? Shakespeare on the radio. I... We're going to be talking about the Richard II, that's not happening at Shakespeare in the Park, but Shakespeare on the radio, because it is going, uh, being, like, broadcast on, like, WNYC, so it is radio, I guess. It is technically radio. Yeah, and... But uh, I don't know how to... I don't know. I don't have a radio, so I don't know how to find it. I don't know either. Uh, no, I do have a radio, but that's, that's not the point. And we're also going to be talking about Julia Pastrana, which is another audio play being produced by Amphibian Stage. Yeah, so we're talking about one play that's in New York, another play that's in Texas, and it's all available in your ears. What? I feel like we're teleporting everywhere every episode we're living in the 1930s because my yeah i love all those audio dramas from that era it's the new old form of theater <laughs> and uh and after that we're going to be talking to playwright claire Barron, pulitzer finalist claire Barron for her play dance nation which is one of my favorite things i have seen in the last couple years she just wrote a play for a new literary journal called The Flash Paper. We're going to be talking to Claire about that because she wrote a play about online dating. And I have questions about do it about that right now. So it is token sex therapy friends today after yeah. all. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Welcome. There may be talk of pussy because if you've, if you've ever been to a Claire Barron play. Let's do this. Let's go into audio so, dramas then. Let's talk about audio plays. You know, well, first of all, I just want to tell people, I think the best way to listen to an audio play, in my opinion, is you put on your headphones and you just take a walk. Like, you walk in your neighborhood, you walk to the park, go somewhere that's not your apartment because this actually allows you to do that. And just, like, really let, like, marinate with it by yourself. Turn off your computer. Like, don't don't let anything else distract you. But That's what I did. I, I had a great time. If you're out on the street and you're, like, saying that don't let anything distract you, there's, like, people without masks outside. And there's people coming from Disney World outside. And there's, like, cars outside. How How is that not dis- – how is that – how? Are you not a New Yorker? Well, yes, but I don't listen to things that I need to focus on when I'm out. I'm listening to music. I only listen to, like, audio stuff. I mean, like, podcasts and stuff when I'm sitting on the subway. But I'm not going to venture out there – while I have to concentrate on following a plot. Because that's like Jeez. a lot. Jeez. Okay. Okay. Well, go to the park. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. I'll stay Thank home. You. Yeah, I'll stay home. Look both look both ways. Okay, so talk about Richard II. I don't even know what Richard II is about. It's about a king. I mean, it's like Shakespeare. And it's about like, I don't know how to set it apart from like other Shakespeare's. Where it's just like intrigue and someone who wants to reclaim a throne and lots of death and stuff. Like, it's about men who want power. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, this was produced by Public Theater in, in collaboration with WNYC and directed by Sahim Ali, whose work we've all seen on stage, and starring the former Token Theater Friends guest and person with a very nice voice, Andre Holland as Richard II. And, and you know, in the play Richard II, uh, Henry... He's being contested for the throne by Henry Bolingbroke, who, you know, no spoiler, I'm gonna tell you, Henry, Henry wins, and that's why there's Henry the Fourth. There's three of those, so don't come after me for spoiling this for you. Not sorry, not sorry, should, should be reading more. Uh, but in this production, what was really fascinating was Miriam A. Heyman played Bolingbroke, and so that's, I've never, Seen actually no no that that's not true I did see the all female Macbeth with you but I've rarely seen a Shakespeare play where they actually play with gender like that because the great thing about the uh, the every episode was yes they did the play for you but also there's also like thirty minutes worth of like explaining the plot and explaining the cultural significance and also explaining the casting and so Sahim Ali was on the show and he said. Like he wanted the only person he could he wanted to see like overthrow a black man was a black woman. So yes, girl power slash take down the patriarchy forever and ever and ever. And actually, Miriam A. Hyman, who we are going to have a feature with her on our side. Uh, you, we are. We are. Yeah, it's actually. <laughs> you didn't tell me that. Well, it's already it's already done. She's actually also a rapper, and her rap uh, name is Robin Hood, and she has a new EP out, and it is fan fucking tastic. So stay tuned for that. She's like so fascinating. Like I loved that she played Bolingbroke because like I'm like hats off. If I was wearing a hat, hats off to her. Like kill all mm-hmm. the evil men and take over forever. Like I love that. And also, um, Lupita Nyong'o is the narrator. And yeah, she was yeah. the one, I think, addition, right? Because, like, all, most of the other actors were set to do it in the actual park um, this summer. And then Lupita was obviously not because they didn't need a narrator. But once they did that, Lupita became the narrator. And trivia mm-hmm. for you also, because I did my research on Miriam. Miriam, at one point, was a ghostwriter for Lupita. Oh, my God. Every... It, it's all interconnected. You know, theater is a very small community, and if you just poke at the right people, like, they'll get you the celebrities that you want. It's always six <laughs> degrees of so many separation <laughs> exactly. with, like, everyone. But I, I love this cast so much, because it also has, like, one of my favorite actors, Barzina Kaban, who I love seeing in everything I see all over the city. And um, it has this, it's this collection of actors who we love seeing, precisely in things like Shakespeare in the Park. Which is why I was very happy that they just didn't give up and be like, okay, I guess no place for the people for free this year. And it said mm-hmm. they went and did that because it was, um, it just listening to the show. I did listen on the radio the first time and then I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to listen on my phone with my headphones. Um, but the first time when I did listen on the radio, I felt very like, I don't know. I felt like I was in a time machine. It, I love how it revealed just being able to sit at home with the Shakespeare kind of like opened up the beauty of the language in a way that I don't get to experience when I'm like, when it's like 2000 degrees outside and I'm sweating and I'm also wearing mm-hmm. like a, like a plastic poncho. Cause like when it rains at Shakespeare in the park, it is one of the worst things that can happen to you. 
Yes. Yeah. So sitting at home. Has happened. Yeah. So sitting at home and listening to all these actors act on the radio, I really ended up enjoying this Richard, although I don't really, I can't name every character. Uh, but I enjoyed this Richard more, I think, than I would have if I had seen it in person. Is that crazy to say? Like, I think there's like an intimacy when Andre Holland is whispering into your ear that it feels like they're talking to you specifically because like you could, you can hear the breath in between every line. Like that's, that's what you get in audio that you don't get quite in live theater because even if they're well mics, like you cannot get every single detail of, of what it is that they're saying. And also I really, Loved the sound design. And this is the same as the other play we're going to be talking about. The fun thing when you're listening to this on your headphones and they do like sound design where it's like clinkling glasses or like a helicopter flying and it goes from what, from your left ear to your right ear. Like I got the ASMR tingles. Oh, I got the different kind of tingles and we'll talk about it when we talk about Julia Pastrana because they were not good tingles. Not good <laughs> at all. At all. <laughs> Like, I, I also really love the fact that it, you know, because one of the things, like, I, uh, I don't know, and, like, probably, like, all the Shakespeare purists are going to come for me when I say this, but I feel like after experiencing Richard II on the radio, I kind of don't want to see, like, Shakespeare dramas on stage anymore. Like, they should all just be, like, radio uh, versions, and then they should just focus mm-hmm. on, like, the comedies and give us the comedies on stage and save the dramas, because they're also, like, super long. Uh, and boring. Yeah. Save Hamlet and save Macbeth, because we've seen Macbeth like a gazillion times, except if it's Lady Macbeth. I mean, you know what I mean. Mac. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All Lady Macbeth. That Macbeth, I want to see everywhere. Anyway, save those for the radio and then give us the comedies on stage, because we're going to need comedies after all of this. But also, the fact that WNYC and the public split this into four chapters, which meant that you could almost follow it like a soap opera, you know, like every night you got an hour of Richard II, which is more than, you know, one hour is more than enough. Who can handle three hours of Richard II in one city? I mean, there are people. We're not those people. <laughs> I mean, and I, I like it. I enjoy it. Like, I mean, I've enjoyed plenty of Macbeth and plenty of Hamlet, but um, it does, it, it, it's not like it's doing it a disservice to Shakespeare. It's just like, Letting us experience Shakespeare in a new, more uh, interactive, like more fun way, I would say. Because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the issues with Shakespeare are precisely that people, you know, they're always like wearing like a monocle and like, oh, you do not, you do not like the bard. I mean, I don't know how to do accents. I'm sorry, but there, it's there, so it's like very stuffy and very like classics. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed this Richard II more than I have any drama that I've seen put on stage. Remember how boring that. Macbeth that Lincoln Center did with Ethan Hawke a few years ago was? No, I didn't see it because I heard it was bad. And and I've seen like fucking five Macbeths. I don't need to... It's like me and Othello or Taming of the Shrew. It's like I don't need any more of that. Yeah, no, definitely It's like I'm fine. I'm fine. I've seen like 12 Macbeths. We're saying Macbeth a lot. Are we going to... Is some is lightning going to strike us right now? No, because we're not actors. No, we're going to have tech issues. That's that's what's going to (laughs) happen. But I wonder if also the reason that we both felt um, more connected to this was was because it was also a mostly black cast. Yes. And the thing with Andre Holland and Miriam A. Hyman is like their voices are just naturally very magnetic and very sympathetic. So like they, it's like good voice acting. 
that that's what I realized about Richard II was on the page, no one's actions make sense. Like, why are you deciding to abdicate your crown? The previous scene, you were like, I'm not giving it up. And the next scene, you're like, okay, maybe. You know, like, it does not make any sense. So it's really up to the actors to kind of fill in the blank spaces for you as audience members. And I think they were really successful in giving these characters motivation and development just by using their voices. So I, I feel like this is this wasn't so much like a play performance. It was like a, a program. Because I really loved the, um, just like the context of everything. So like for every subsequent episode, it was like, last night on Richard II, Bolingbroke has returned to England. It was a soap like, opera. I loved it. It was a yeah. soap opera. <laughs> you know, I love the context. I love like the setup for every scene where it's like, okay, you can't, you, the audience can't see it, but you know, uh, Richard is in his castle and he's talking to his advisors. So it was very much a, well, we'll, we'll walk you through this because we're not going to assume that you can understand 100% of it because even I, you know, have a degree in this. I don't understand. I only understand maybe 70% of it at all, at all times. No one understands anything. And when Lupita Nyong'o is your guide and your narrator, I mean, who needs more than that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a well-constructed program. And I really appreciate Ayanna Thompson, who was a Shakespeare scholar, who they brought in to give us background information. She was like... We don't need to produce Othello or Taming the Shrew or any problematic plays anymore because they are toxic. And we need to put people of color in stuff like this. And I'm like, yes. Yes. Say that on national radio. Yes. I, I was I was very excited also because, you know, as much as I love Shakespeare in the Park because it's free and New Yorkers get to see it, I was so excited that people all over the world get to listen to this because the public uh, made it available also as a podcast. So, yeah, yeah, if you, yeah, WNYC's podcast, yeah, so you like, can still download I remember it. when I didn't live here, I and I saw about that in Hathaway, Raul Esparza, uh, Twelfth Night, I was like, I mean, it's like wishing that I could just teletransport myself to New York City that summer. I really like the idea of, you know, those audio, those audio versions of those plays exist, existing somewhere, because also theater is so fleeting and so once in a lifetime one moment and it's gone blah 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 thing but i i love the fact that this really groundbreaking richard ii is gonna live forever so well done mm-hmm. WNYC. Well, or or whenever actors equity tells them to take it down i don't know how long they signed that contract for so after you finish listening to this podcast go and just download all four episodes and keep it in your hard drives for whenever you have time to listen to it and now the fbi comes for us <laughs> Okay, let's talk about Julia Pastrana then. Julia Pastrana is a play written by Sean Prendergast, uh, directed by Jonathan Fielding, with sound design by David Lanza. And it's currently being mounted by Amphibian Stage in Texas. You can buy tickets until July 30th. And you're sent directions to listen to the play while in complete darkness, which I did. And I got spooked by my cat, but that's fine. <laughs> but it's about, it's actually a real life story because, you know, you know me, I love researching these, like, based on true, based, based on a true story kind of plays and movies. But it, it was about this real life woman who had a birth defect and where, you know, where, like, her features were just really large and pronounced and they called her the ugliest woman in the world and, like, exhibited, exhibited her in a circus and then she died and then and then they 
embalmed her body and continued to exhibit her until the 1970s. Like, what is wrong with you people? Everything is wrong with people. Yeah, everything is wrong with people. But apparently she did, her body was eventually interred in like the early 2000s in Mexico where she was born. I mean, at least that's the least I could do. So this play, this play reminded me, it was kind of like a cross between like that American horror story sideshow and the musical sideshow. And also Venus by Susan Laurie Parks. Yes, Venus, yes! But you know the tingles it gave me? Okay. Remember that play? That we went see that was in the dark, but that we had to walk, and they threw fart bumps at us. Oh, remember yes. that? What was that yes. called? I remember. I remember. It was it was a Halloween play, though. I kept thinking that someone was gonna come through stink bombs at my face while I was listening to Julia Pastrana, because I kept. I was so. It was like that play was so traumatic. So the how how why did you get the disgusting tingles during Julia Pastrana? Because it's so immersive that I felt that someone might sneak behind me and throw a fart bomb in my face. <laughs> like they did at that play where we were moving. Did you see, what was it called? Was it called The Encounter, that sound thing that they did on Broadway? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was, Julia Pastrana was like a really, I mean, I enjoyed The Encounter, but it was very like, you know, white guy goes to like the forest, kind of like kumbaya, like it's like Efren dad bod beard going to Costa Rica kind of thing. Uh, well, Julia Pastrana was just like a really wonderful drama. So you did have the Venus connection also, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely yeah. had the Venus connection. And, and also had, you know, The Greatest Showman and also The uh, Chinese Lady, which is another play by Lloyd Tsa about a Chinese woman who was also fucking exhibited. Why do they do that to people? <sighs> because there's something wrong with white people, Jose. Very, very then wrong. And with now. Jesus Christ. But uh, I, I love, cause it's, I mean, I did not do the research about the real Julia, but even just like in the way that the, the sound design is just so exquisite. Uh, and even the way the story is told and the acting is so good. Poor Julia, I felt so bad when she was yelling when the baby was born. Yes! Oh my god, you could, there's a birth scene and you could like feel her screams. Like right here. Yeah, right like down the back of your neck. I was like, oh my god, how, I feel like the sound design, like, I feel like this is something that Zoom Theater hasn't quite figured out because the connection's usually so bad, is, like, how to get that kind of quality. And so, like, this is, like, these are, like, the first times I've actually felt, like, oh, this we're, this is a production. We have production quality, which is what I've been missing for the past couple months. Yeah. Make radio great again. Or exactly. Like Ew, we're, we're like, oh, are we like nostalgia people? Like, give us our radio and our, I don't know. Give us our radio dramas. That's I so mean, funny. It's working really well. Yeah. But some Zoom people are doing interesting stuff. Now, maybe not with sound, because, yeah, the connection is always terrible, but with lighting and with sets, but whatever, that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. But hey, I haven't gotten ASMR tingles from, you know, a Zoom play yet. I hope not. <laughs> I'd be very disturbed if you had, to be honest. It's not sexual. It's just... Even if it's not sexual, like, ASMR is, like, pleasurable. But still, I, I, I do have a question for you about about race. Because, like, this came up in Richard II, too. Like, if, if, you, if we're just listening to these voices, 
does it's not like does race matter it's more like are we still can we still have like a conversation about representation and what it means when it's an audio form I mean, of course we can. Like, I was so excited every time I heard Lupita Nyong'o and Richard II. It's about opportunity, I think, more than anything. Um, who was it that recently quit uh, for do- for being white and voicing a biracial character on, like, a Netflix show uh, or something like that? I think it was Kirsten Bell who voiced an Asian character on Bojang Horseman, and she apologized for that. But also, like, another white lady apologized for something another, else yeah, recently. And also... Apu, the dude who plays Hank Azaria in The Simpsons, who yeah. plays Apu. Who was married to Helen Hunt for a very long time. As long as you're not a white person playing, like, a black character. I mean, I do not want to listen to Kristen Bell doing Once on This Island, for instance. <laughs> like, I do not want to listen to Julia Roberts and Matt Damon and George Clooney doing Hamilton. So yeah, as long as you're not just white people, stop stop doing accents. Like don't 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 accent stuff. So I'm all about seeing not seeing, but I'm all about listening um, to actors of color playing bullshit Shakespeare characters because like, those people don't exist anymore. And even if they existed, like fuck it. Yeah, I don't want it to be just like oh James Earl Jones is gonna voice Darth Vader and Mufasa. I want to listen to James Earl Jones voicing, like, Shakespeare characters also on the radio. I'm sure he has, because he's, like, super old. He's not a voice tip, but he had done, done King Lear on stage in the 50s. Right. But I want to see, and when I keep seeing, I keep saying see, but I want to hear more of that. Like, I, I just, I basically think that white people should not be playing characters who are specifically other races. But I'm all about listening to actors of color play any character. Because I, I think what was interesting with Richard II versus Hula Pastrana was, in Richard II, like the casting of black character, of the casting of black actors was a was a. There was also a commentary on race and about power and about how you know power can corrupt, even the best-hearted people, and and I think what was interesting in Hula, Hula Pastrana was yes, the actress playing her was was Latinx, uh, Hannah Martinez. And, but what was interesting was J.R. Bradford, who is black, he he voiced her husband who, you know, exploited her and eventually had her embalmed. And so I felt like it was, like, I don't know how race factored into, I'm still trying to figure out how race factored into the, uh, you know, the interpretation of that. I kind of think it's different because, like, we know people like Andre Holland, for instance, and we know Lupita Nyong'o, but I don't know the gentleman who voiced Julia Pastrana's husband, for instance. So in that case, I would say, you know, the opportunity for it is what I would mm-hmm. go for because, I, I mean, we don't know him, right? I don't know if he's like no, a, no. I don't know if he's like a known actor in uh, Texas. Uh, apologies, sir, if you are, but I don't know your work. Uh, but I, I feel like when it is people that people know and that people will, cause I kept imagining Andre Holland in like a crown and like, you know, like sexy, like leather, I don't know, S&M Shakespeare gear. Uh, like, remember that, what was that production? Was it at Mayi that they did a, was it another Richard? It was like, it has like, the, it had like the great, the best costumes. And it was like, all these actors of color in like harnesses and stuff. It wasn't like a sexual thing. 
It's like harnesses and like leather and stuff, and it was so cool. So I kept imagining the costumes for this uh, were like like harnesses and like, you know like cool like I don't know Madonna in the confession tour kind of like S and M gear with like I don't know I don't know what I'm talking about, but I kept thinking about Andre Holland, and every time like Lupita Nyong'o would narrate, I kept imagining her as like Laura Lini and like Welcome to. What is it? Like, this is PBS Masterpiece. Welcome to Downton Abbey. I'm Laura Lini. I kept imagining, you know, I kept seeing that. And I was very happy that I was imagining Lupita Nyong'o and Miriam A. Hyman and Andre Holland and Barzina Kavan and Shankar Rahal and not imagining uh, Kristen Bell. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of bells, if you want to hear some bells, you can download either of these wonderful productions and uh, and keep them and, and, and have them in your ears, and hopefully you get some tingles out of it. Not scary tingles, but, but fart bombs. But like no, 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 good no, no tingles. nice tingles, nice tingles. Yeah. There's also a sexy in Julio Pastrana, and it's really disturbing. So it's disturbing, yeah. And next up, we have our in- interview with Pulitzer Prize finalist playwright Claire Barron, where we're going to be talking to her about vaginas and plays and other stuff. Work. Hi, Claire. Hi, Claire. <laughs> Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for joining us. This is so exciting. So happy to be with you today. Okay, Claire, I have to tell you, first first off, you're responsible for the most uncomfortable I've ever felt in a theater, which was during I'll Never Love Again at the Bushwick Star, when because you were in that play, and, and you get eaten out during the play and it's a very uncomfortable experience for your character and I was just sitting there thinking oh my god this takes you back to the first time that happened and it was oh my god so cringy so too intimate I, I don't know how I feel about this yeah my my one of my best friends who was the playwright was like so mad at me she like saw the play and like it was just like I really did not want to like see that you do that I feel like people have such different reactions to that scene like some people are like that you know, that is how, like, early sex and sometimes, like, late sex, like, felt to me. And so, like, they appreciate uh, it, seeing it. And then other people are like, I really did not want to watch that on stage. <laughs> and, and it's not like I didn't want to watch it. It was more like it just felt, you know. Yeah. Like it hit, yeah. It yeah. hit me at the visceral level. Yeah. Yeah. And ha- well, I didn't see that, but go, you, go Claire. I mean, it was really crazy because, you know, I can talk about it now, but like we really just everything was real. And that's, you know, we did it at the Bushwick Star. When you work with the Bushwick Star, at least when we did in 2016, you're still like self-producing. So you're still having to like raise money and like put on the show. And Noel's so amazing um, who runs the Bushwick Star. He's such an amazing dramaturg and stuff. But there really is this really respectful like hands-off policy which is actually really special because like they just let the artists like make their work and so you know I that's why I cast myself in that role I was just like I hate fake sex on stage and so I'm just gonna cast myself with someone that I feel comfortable like doing this for real and he actually fisted me and he actually ate me out and um we did it every night and no one stopped us wait that actually happened yeah. yeah. I'm still like, go Claire. <laughs> yeah, it was really surreal. And I, I like, should I, you know, it's funny. I, um, well, I don't know if I should, 
whatever. I always am a little over sharing. You know, I my, I have had sex in public before, so like it, I I'm I have a high comfort level with like that kind of thing. Um, but it was very surreal, and it's the most in some ways it's the most fun I've ever had acting because. I had such like a clear physical task in front of me that I really wasn't stressed. Do you know what I mean? I was just sort of like, I, I know this is going to happen. He slapped me too. Like, I know he's going to slap me. Like, I know this is going to happen. And so in some ways it was like very liberating. Because like intercourse in itself is so performative, right? Like we are, I mean, I'm super gay, so I've never actually seen a vulva nearby. Uh, but sex intercourse is always so performative so i would love to hear a little bit more about that because you know like even during like sex like i feel like most human beings are always like trying to put on a, a show like i was telling deep earlier uh that i i'm a, i'm sorry claire like if you want to hang up after i say this i understand but Yay! i'm a huge i'm a huge gwyneth paltrow fan and i was watching the goop lab on netflix and oh she had she had an episode about vaginas and I was telling deep that I was horrified when I learned that in the past like five years or so 40, you know, there's been like a 40% increase in the number of women who have like uh, vagina plastic surgery. Cause like yeah. they want their vulvas to look like porn star vulvas and like porn is just like straight men and gay men, but it's all about men lying and like, just like, it's the pleasure is centered on them completely. So it really pisses me off that women, like anyone, but especially like women would have to go through like a surgical process to fit this ridiculous fantasy that men have when men are so lazy and we are so dumb and we don't deserve people, you know, having surgery done to please us. It's bullshit. So I wonder if knowing how, intercourse would play out because you wrote the scene you know made it empowered you even more because you removed that whole performative aspect of intercourse if you're doing that yeah I, I think also because the character is so young she's 15 and so like now I'm 34 I just had sex last night and like you know you like learn how to like make those sounds and like say those things like about whatever you're saying, dirty talk or whatever, you you learn how to like literally make someone come with your voice. You know what I mean? And like when I was 15, oh my gosh, I don't think I could have made a sex noise to like save my life. You know what I mean? Like you're just so like, um, and then it was complica complicated because that uh, young woman character was not really wanting to engage in that sex act, but didn't have the communication tools to like communicate that she wanted it to stop. And so, uh, you know, I wrote that whole play. It, it was made out of my actual 15 year old diary. I grew up like really Christian and wanted to save my virginity for my husband. That was like a really important thing to me. And I grew up with a lot of sexual shame and I ended up in this like sexually abusive relationship with another playwright actually. And so I wrote that play because I was sort of like, how did I go from this extremely like virginal person who was, you know, the, the story of the relationship in the play, the only thing they ever do is kiss. So the scene that we're talking about is what she does with like her second boyfriend, which I feel like is so classic where you like keep your virginity safe for someone and then they break your heart 
and you're like, fuck it, I'll fuck anyone who like comes in the door. Like it's like, you know, and so it was a little bit of a therapeutic, um, even though the scene was traumatic, it was therapeutic for me to like go through it in a weird way. So what, what's been like part of your process of, I, cause I feel like a lot of femininity is like unlearning the damage, like undoing the damage that you didn't ask for slash is kind of inceptioned into your brain through, you know, expectations and of what you're supposed to do. And so like, what was the process of, for you of like figuring out, Oh, this is why I like, this is how I can authentically express myself. This is how no. I can like speak up for myself. It was really painful. Um, I, I kept my my penetrative virginity because I don't really believe in virginity, or I, I think it's you know super limiting and what who it includes. And I had tons of sex before I ever had a penis in my vagina. Um, so I didn't have like a penis in my vagina until I was quite old. I mean, not old, but like older than I think the average person. It was after college, um, but I had a ton of um, sex that was really fulfilling before that moment, but I had a lot of shame. I was so terrified that if a penis went inside my vagina, which is such like a conservative Christian thing, I would go to hell. That's what I thought would happen. But it kind of backfired and made me like extremely kinky because basically what happened in college is because I was so terrified to like let that happen I was like let me explore BDSM let me explore like this let me explore that let me explore this person let me explore that person so I I sort of like explored um horizontally if that makes sense but it's been a really long difficult road I've I've also been sexually assaulted uh like multiple times in my life both by um, men I was dating and strangers so there's just been like a lot of um I've had some really bad partners that have like, I will make progress and then sort of like backtrack a bunch and then have to sort of like, I don't know. So it's, uh, it's an ongoing, I'm yeah. 34 and I still feel like I struggle with that shame. And, and even as I'm like saying this stuff, I'm not ashamed of everything I'm saying, but like, like I hope my parents don't listen to this. <laughs> You know, like there's so many people in my life that I don't feel like as a person, I feel totally comfortable being like, oh, I'm really into BDSM. But like there's so many people in my life who I would feel, you know, like really mortified to say that in front of so the process. I think it was like after after we went to Dance Nation, which we did not see together. But after we went to Dance Nation and we discussed it in our show and I remember asking Deep, can I say pussy? And she was like, sure. Because, you know, one of the things that I that I have really loved about your work is that, um, and I don't know if this makes sense, but as a, as a gay man, you know, growing up, and even now, like, I find men and male characters so boring and so stupid and so <laughs> predictable. And I have always loved seeing empowered female characters on stage and on screen and reading about it. And even, you know, I felt so empowered by the oh, pussy monologues in Dance Station that I was like, I want to go out and recite them, even if I'm a cis male who doesn't have a vagina. And I was like, and, and, I, and I was 
wondering if you can talk a little bit about that because I feel that because your writing is so urgent but also so funny and so human and something real like I want to recite everything about vaginas and dancation in a way that I don't want to recite anything in any Shakespeare that any man ever says. That's so nice. You know, I'm going to I might I'm going to say something like about that pussy monologue at the end and also why the 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 cis men in the play there to participate and um that might make me sound a little crazy but um i just feel like and, and it's a little bit what you you both were talking about in terms of like uh, the way that um the way that women and men are socialized sexually like you know i feel like being penetrated if you are a person who has a vagina and you are penetrated by a penis or by an object or whatever it is, that's, it's extremely vulnerable. And I also think for a lot of women, it's painful. Like I, in addition to like losing my virginity late, I had something called vaginismus, which is like uh, essentially just like painful sex. So when I, I waited like all these years to like have that penis in my vagina and then it fucking hurt so bad. It hurt for years, like excruciating pain. So for me, sex and pain have always been one, which I think is a very foreign concept for a lot of cis men, um, like where it's just like a pleasure experience. And so like, I feel like I, and also I think as a sexual assault survivor, even though I don't uh, always like that word, like um, I just think being penetrated is really intense. And something that I would love for cis men is like the, emotional spiritual experience of like being penetrated of like knowing what it feels like to to be penetrated and and this is where I start to sound a little crazy but like I love like ass play on men that's something that whenever whenever I have sex with cis men I'm really into and I think it's partly because I like even if it's just with a finger like having that vulnerable relationship with a cis man and like being inside him and like penetrating him and so like sometimes I think that maybe if like all of us, no matter our gender and no matter our anatomy, if we all were penetrated in some way, that like it would actually make us all more empathetic or like better sexual partners to like understanding what it feels like. I don't know if I sound crazy, but like that's sort of like my sexual dream for the world is that everyone can experience being penetrated and through that experience of being vulnerable, be more generous, giving and careful sexual partners. So, yeah, I want men to, like, celebrate their pussies is what I'm saying. As someone, you know, as a gay man who is versatile, who has penetrated and who has been penetrated, you're completely right. I mean, again, I don't have a I don't have a vulva, I don't have a vagina, but there is that, you know, that vulnerability that comes when you are, you know, if you're a male and you are a bottom and that, uh, oh, my God, my father's. I want my father to listen to this. Uh, and if you happen to be bottoming during that, you know, during sex, the vulnerability is so incredible that I remember the first time that I did that with someone that I loved, I felt for the first time, I felt like, oh, wow, it's, it, it is like the movies where you're like, you know, like where it's almost like the covers just like land on you, like in this very like strategic way and all that. And as someone who's like very cold and who tries to be very in control, that vulnerability is something that I, in fact, which is also part of being socialized as a man, even if it, even if I'm gay, 
that vulnerability is something that I sometimes really run away from, that I don't want to deal with that, which is why when I was reading uh, what this will be like when it's over and your very first line, and I had to read it because I have it in front of me and I don't want to like, you know, misquote you in front of you. And when you just open by saying, do you want to tell me what you're thinking about? And I'm like, how do you get in people's heads like that, Claire? Like, how, how do you do that? Can you, do you have like a formula? Uh, I think it's also an intimacy thing of like, how, how do you like create intimacy? Because that's, the head is the first thing I feel like. Yeah, it should be the first thing. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, in, intimacy comes from that part, truly. Well, something that's been really interesting about like dating during COVID is that, you know, I've started and I'm now seeing people in person, but for a long time it was all virtual. So you did start with the head. It started with the fantasy, you know, like tell me what your fantasies are, like back and forth, like over and over again, like what are these fantasies? But it's interesting because again, these experiences were with cis men, but even then there was this imbalance because I was constantly sending new photos and videos of myself and they were very rarely ever sending something back so like once again even in the virtual sex I felt like my body was vulnerable the 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 inspiration for um this piece is this like I I mean I'll just talk about him because I really don't like him it's like this 42 year old playwright I met who like we had this weird entanglement and I just felt like he was so selfish like selfish and I don't know if that comes apart in the piece because I was trying to be like really um I was trying not to just like be so one-sided or anything but like he he expected me to just sort of like give him pictures of my tits and my pussies and my ass but like nothing came back and then he had initiated every single aspect of our encounter he had like looked me up he had asked me out he had initiated the text he had initiated the calls and we get on a Zoom call to have Zoom sex. And the first thing he says to me is, hey, just so you know, just because we're doing this virtual thing doesn't mean I ever want to fuck you in real life. That was like his opening line. And I was just like, fuck you, pretentious, presumptuous piece of shit. Like, like I don't know. I just don't understand how he could be so entitled to my body, if that makes like, and so I don't know. Now I'm just off on a rant, but like, it just made me so angry. Um, And yet there was something really beautiful about us sharing our fantasies over texts and sharing our fantasies over phone calls. And there was something so nice, you know, something that I've learned from COVID that I've forgotten about sex. is just like how much fun foreplay is that like delay is actually like so delicious and like amazing. Um, um, Those were some of the things I was thinking about when I was, writing that piece it's because like even you know i get very angry at men i love this This is like the best episode of sex in a city ever um it's like man i always get so angry at men because even you know even like the most like the dumbest out of shape boring man in the world will always think that he's more fuckable than like the smartest like most attractive whatever women in the world and that also like applies with gay guys like we are the worst of everything so yeah gay guys suck anyway but and i see that with my friends where i I would be with like my girlfriends where i'd be like that man is like boring he has like a he no like he has a really bad haircut like and look at you and like you're smart 
and you're beautiful, you're so interesting, and why is this man? You know, it's that power imbalance, it's always like, it really pisses me off. And, you know, the character does not come off as bad as you're saying, but it, the character is a jerk. And I was like, this person's a jerk. And I kind of like wanted to stop reading, but I was like, but it's also such good prose that I can't stop reading. <laughs> and for me, what it brought for me, what it brought up was the fact that so like, you know, I, I like you also lost my also had a penis inside of me very late in my life, like in, in my early 20s. And so and because it came from a place of shame of like, oh, I need to keep this intact for for yeah. however long. And, yeah. and then after that happened and then I moved to New York and and my 20s was basically like, OK, what is it's like, what do I feel about sex? Like, I want to experience experience it because I'm fucking it it's like I'm horny I want to fuck everything because I never got to in my teenage years but then at the same time you still have that voice in the back of your head being like oh you you need to value this and and so I feel like there's always like these two sides of my brain where I'm just like I want to be empowered I want to be the Samantha where I don't where I can do this and not feel too bad about myself or not feel like rejected if someone doesn't call me after but I also want to have the intimacy and to have and to have people value me beyond you know what uh, beyond my vagina and so and so I feel like now with COVID I I haven't dated but I I feel like I feel like in my 30s now it's very much like a return to try to find try to figure out like what this means to me what is it's like how do I build intimacy in in conjunction with building building like a sexual relationship. I feel that that's too hardcore. I've tried to sort of like, I hate to say it. Like, I, I just feel like I have had situations with straight men where I put out and then be, been devalued because like they essentially treat me like a slut because I am mm -hmm. hypersexual and it really hurt me. Um, for sure, like that bitch is like crazy and like, sucks your dick but like she's not actually and it's been like really painful and it's hard because being sexual is a huge part of who I am but I too in my 30s in a protective way have tried to sort of like slow down a little bit and get to know someone a little bit more but it's just because I've been like hurt so much exactly I'm trying to protect myself I wonder then like you know because like I've told deep many times that I I have realized that a lot of times the writing that of mine that people respond to the most is the one that comes from really vulnerable vulnerable places or like really angry places or places that come from like you know deep feelings that I don't like dealing with so I wonder for you when does something that you know feels like someone devalued you or someone you know like that jerk who was like the zoom jerk for instance how do you then go let me take this experience and see if I can turn it into art. And how do you get to that place? Because I, 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 I'm like mind blown and I wish I could do that also. But I just want to run away from it. I don't want to deal with it. I think it's so personal. You know, my, so my, um, my first playwriting teacher ever was Deb Margolin. Um, and she, uh, she, talks about the theater of desire and you know like really writing from like what you need to say and it sounds so like you know it's it's such like a big statement but she always says like say today what you need to say if you were to die tomorrow like 
anytime you write, like really think about like, what, what do I need to like get out? And like, so I always think about Deb and Deb, cause I was an actor before I was a playwright and Deb saying that to me really helped me start like writing. It just sort of like unlocked something in me. And, and I think that's why like all my plays that have ever existed are about essentially about trauma. Um, but I think for me, you know, for me, it makes me feel better to write about it. It makes me feel like I'm taking back power or it makes me feel, I think it's related to that upbringing of being raised really Christian where I felt like I had to repress my dark thoughts. Um, and I'm also bipolar. So like I have a lot of dark thoughts. So there's something about theater and playwriting. It's like gives me permission to like say the things I'm afraid to say. Um, but, you know, I think it, it's interesting. I, you know, I haven't written a new play in four years. Um, and I, um, so part of being a writer like that is that when I'm feeling it, I write. And if I'm not feeling it, I just don't, I just oh. don't write, you know, which is, and, and I've been like very, I want to say I've been very lucky because what, what essentially what happened is in my late twenties and, and when I was 30, I wrote a bunch of plays very quickly. And what's happening is they're slowly getting produced <laughs> as I'm older. So people think that I'm writing. But the reality is I wrote like four plays within 18 months and then like haven't written in four years. And I think that's maybe my process. Like I sort of feel like maybe I'll be like 38 and write like four more plays between like 38 you know like I feel like every writer is different and so I I never like force myself to write or push myself to write I I write when I like want to when I want to write but how because <laughs> like I I you know one of the evil things about capitalism is like it ties your worth as a human being to how productive you are for me and, and I always feel like, oh, I feel good when I produce something. And so I just, I write really very fast. So I just produce a lot. Yeah. Um, but now I'm trying to slow down and just really focus on, just like marinate with things a lot longer, which for me is like a two week period, which I know is for a playwright. It's, that's insane. So like, how do you like turn off the, the societal pressure of like, you need to do something? Well, I think it's also like I, I, you know, I haven't written a play in four years, but I've been working in TV. So I've done more like work work. You know, I work up, write a pilot or I um, work, I've staffed twice where I've like written episodes for like TV shows. And then I've also just like had a fair number of productions. And when I go into production, that's like two months of just like working all the time. So so I have I've definitely been like working these past four years. It's just that my work hasn't been generating like a new play. I wonder if going back and seeing productions of plays that you wrote four years ago in any way serves like a time machine also, like where you're sitting in the dark, maybe looking at the rehearsal and you're like, oh, that's such, you know, 29 year old Claire. Yeah, for sure. There's this play that was supposed to happen next year and I don't know if it's going to happen. It's the last play I wrote. I wrote it in 2016 before um, the Me Too movement and it's about uh, an experience of sexual assault inside of a dating relationship. Um, it's only 70 minutes. It's a really weird play. Um, so many theaters passed on it because, well, I don't know why they passed on it. They just didn't get it or they just didn't like it, which is totally fair. But um 
it was it finally got a production that was supposed to happen next year and now i don't know if that's going to happen but i feel like i just want to make it so badly because it is about this really traumatic chapter in my life and i just want to go through the catharsis of like fucking making it and i'm supposed to direct it too which is like a huge um thing i've been wanting to do for a long time and so i'm just like itching myself i'm so hungry to like make that um play and sort of yeah because it does feel old it does it feels like a you know it feels um it also is so i was diagnosed with bipolar when i was 30. i i had a it's actually a funny story. I had a pretty serious mental breakdown a few days before the 2016 election. And um, I was pretty incapacitated. And my friend who worked on the Hillary campaign knew about it. And so she came to my house and picked me up and was like, I have a surprise for you. We're going to the Javits Center tonight. You're going to see the first woman elected president. So I was like barely functioning, barely like truly incapacitated and she took me to the job at center and then it was just like being on the titanic when the titanic was thinking it was like the most depressing place in the entire world to be trapped that night like at the job at center like sitting on the convention floor and then like they'd see us all sitting down like crying and they'd be like stand up stand up stand up cheer because they didn't want they didn't want like images of like us upset on the tv so we'd have to like stand up and like cheer and my friend was like I'm so sorry I um, brought you here, but um, I haven't, and I, yeah, I haven't written a play since that breakdown, um, which I think is related, but also, yeah, this old play, I want to like, like as a, as an artist, I want to make it, but also as a human, I want to like make it to like move on. Cause I don't feel like I'll ever fully move on until I get to see it through. So we'll oh. see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, we both love your work. So crossing my fingers, <laughs> we'll even, if it, even if it's through Zoom and no one can tie to each other, like also, also watch anything that you do. Oh, thank you. But I, I actually wanted to uh, ask you about like, since you're directing and because because like all, all your plays like just talk, I mean, the plays I've seen just talk about like, really, it's really uncomfortable. And, and, you know, you acted in one of them. And so like, and the, there's been and since me since 2017, there's been a big conversation around like intimacy directors and making sure people feel safe. And so like, what's part of, for you when you're in the room, like what's part of your process, in terms of just making sure people feel comfortable speaking up if something doesn't, if they're if they don't want to do something? I feel like I, to be honest with you, I feel like I've made some mistakes because as I, you know, said in my, in like my Bushwick star show, like the type of person I am is like a balls to the wall type person. And obviously not every actor is going to be that way. And so, um, I feel like my relationship to it has like really changed. And now when I write a play, I feel like hyper, you know, when I used to write plays, I used to be like, yeah, nudity, like spit in her face. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like now I'm sort of like less interested in writing plays like that they just like don't interest me and you know there was nudity in dance nation and i i still wonder if that was like the right choice and when we did the production in london i i think it's the biggest mistake of my professional career i handled it really really badly and i feel really bad about it i mean it was it was like many things it was like a breakdown of many things like Nudity is written into the script, so the actors should have been aware of it. But I think there was a breakdown in co conversation with the agents. Like, 
I don't think before they were even cast, I don't think the right conversations happened. And then the director in London, who is a dear friend of mine who I love, it was a man. And so he didn't really feel comfortable having this conversation with the women. So he kept asking me to have it as the playwright, which I feel like is not good because like I wrote it and then me asking them, it's like a lot of pressure. And then there was also a cultural problem where like the women in New York, when we talked about the nudity in New York, they let us know very clearly how they felt about it. They were like, yes, no, we'll do this, we'll not do this. But these British women, they didn't say anything. So I did, I misinterpret, their silence was a no. It was an emphatic, no, we are not doing this. But I feel like I misread it and like didn't understand or maybe I wasn't listening well. I take full responsibility. I feel like I majorly fucked up. So I kept bringing it up because the director kept asking me to bring it up, which resulted in the women feeling really um, pressured. And then also there was a dynamic of like, I'm white and the cast is diverse and I'm like very tiny. And so like there was also like a fucked up dynamic of um, that too, where I think, and, they, and also it's an intergenerational cast. They're all ages. So like I, I was, you know, and I'm young. And so it was, I was sort of like, I've been naked on stage. And I think rightfully some of the women were like, fuck you, <laughs> like shut the fuck up. Like, it's not the same thing. This is, this is a white audience too. Right. So it's just like, not the same thing. So that I think is, I really mishandled that situation. And it really made me think, I don't think I will, to be honest with you, I don't think I will ever write nudity into a play again that I don't that I'm not personally performing. Like I'll, I'll write it into a play that I'll perform, but I don't think I'll ever ask another woman to get naked on stage again. Even though the nudity in Dance Nation, I mean, most people didn't even see it. It goes by so quickly. You know, it's meant to be like subversive because it's like multiple people getting naked at the same time as they're changing. It's not sexualized. Like I wrote it into the play because I was interested in non-sexualized female nudity, but like, I don't know. I just am starting to feel like it's not worth it or like I, I just never the thought of like making any actor who's working with me uncomfortable makes me feel like shit. So I I feel like I won't do it again. And I definitely feel like I've made mistakes in my past. So I grew up in a household where my mom and my dad were naked all the time. Like, no. So anyway, like my parents were not nudists or anything, but anything like that. But like from a very early age, my mom was like, this isn't called this or that. This is called a penis. This is called a vagina. Right. So I grew up knowing the words and knowing what the language was for everything. And I see right now I'm 34 and I see 45 year olds who start blushing and giggling when they hear the word vulva or the word penis. I wonder for you, you know, because you, you grew up in a very, uh, you know, in a Christian, like conservative, conservative household. So was there a piece of fiction, like either a book or a play or a movie or whatever, where you finally were like, oh, wow, like, you know, this is not what I've been told, like where you discovered, so to speak, that we don't, we, we are so immature as a society that we don't even want to use the right words to describe genitalia and to like describe sexual acts or anything like that. Was there anything like that in art or did you feel like nothing exists? I need to write it myself. No, it's two answers for you. One is I grew up reading a lot of romance novels, which I would get at the public library and like the librarian would like recommend to me, which is very funny because they, they literally talk about like, 
clitorises and stuff like that. And those they're very graphic. But I also have this memory of a friend giving me um, the book uh, Henry Miller's Quiet Days and Clichy. Oh my God! It's like the word cock is like every other word in that book. It's so graphic. I was so traumatized. I was not ready for it. I was like, this is like a type of sex that I am not. It's like bending the. It's like I bent the woman over and then I took my like semi erect cock and like pushed it into her pussy. Uh, I was like, okay. what? It's very, it's very graphic yeah. and very violent and very cock driven and. I probably read it when I was like 16 or 17 and I was just like, Oh my God. But I mean, to give you an idea of like how sheltered I was, I remember talking to my friend Becca about, um, I remember talking to my friend Becca about Bill Clinton and we were probably like 15 and we were talking about like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And we were basically like, we don't understand why it's such a big deal. Like talking dirty isn't a big deal because we heard the words oral sex and we knew like oral exam. And so we thought that oral sex was like talking dirty on the phone. And we were like 15 and like, didn't know what oral sex was, you know, Um, which yeah, now seems like so crazy to me when I think back on it, but yeah. But oral, that doesn't happen in romance novels. That's the interesting thing about romance novels is that they're so female pleasure centric. So the man, the man goes down on the woman all the time. But I, I feel like maybe three times I can count on one hand the number of times there's been a blowjob in a, in a romance novel. It's just like not what happens. Um, it's because they're written by women mostly. Yeah. And for women. Claire, thank you so much. It's been such a delight talking to you. Now I want to yeah. give you Gwyneth Paltrow's This Candle Smells Like My Vagina Candle. Oh. But I don't I don't have it, so I can't give it to you. But if and I we could, can't I afford this. Yeah, we can't afford the it. Idea of it. The idea of it gives me warm. The idea of it gives me warm. Yeah, I want one too. So like, if people want to send Claire and me goop, This Candle Smells Like Vagina Candles, like, please do it. And Claire, please let us know where we can find all your projects right now, because you have that play, that beautiful play in the uh, Flash paper. And can people buy Dance Nation? And are any of your plays going to be streamed or anything like that? I don't think I'm having any streaming, but Dance Nation and You Got Older, two of my plays are both published, which you can buy. Um, And the Flash paper is out. It's a lot of great work from a lot of great people. Uh, Aren't you working on something with New York Theater Workshop? Or yeah, you're we were still thinking about it. We were to, I did an uh, adaptation of uh, Three Sisters that um, Sam Gould is directing, and we were supposed to open May 14th. So um, I think we're gonna, we're you know, we're hoping to do it next year. But you know, I, I, at this point, I sort of take each day at a time, and um, hopefully, we'll get to make it at some point. But um, we'll see. I forgot about that, and I was like, I'm just gonna say right now that I love you for any involvement that you had in casting the sexiest man alive, Steve Buscemi, in that play. Oh, my God. He is... I had no involvement in that, and I'm so excited that he is in it. <laughs> I'm so I excited. Love him. I'm obsessed with him. I mean, he's the so cutest good. guy. Anyway, thank you so much, Claire. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. Take care.
Why was that pussy monologue? I love that pussy monologue so much. Oh, I wish my soul was as perfect as my pussy. Yes. Thank you, Claire, for talking to us. And and thank you all for listening. Uh, Remember to... Yeah, remember to get your copy of The Flash Paper so that and so that you can also act out Claire's fantasy play about trying to date during a pandemic and <laughs> it being really embarrassing for everybody involved. And now is our is ours and yours favorite part of the podcast where we talk about why you should be one of our patrons. Go, Jose. I should be wearing a bow tie like an NPR person next time. We've, we've talked about WNYC and NPR a lot. Like, we're going to get sued. Please don't sue mm-hmm. us. We have no money. NPR and WNYC. Thank you. We love doing this so much. And one of the reasons why we do this is because of you, our listeners, and our viewers. Not one of the reasons. The main reason why we do this is because of you, our listeners, viewers, and readers. But we both are basically out of work. And as much as we love doing this work, it is work. And we need to eat and pay rent and pay our bills and stuff. So we are very, very grateful for all of you who can become patrons and contribute to our cause. In the words of some president, was it Lincoln or someone who said, by the people, for the people, who the people, all the people? I don't know. Um, so yeah, this is for us, but it's also so yeah, this is for you. Like we want to make you proud. We want to make you happy. We want to talk to the artists that no one else is talking to. We want to talk to the people who look like us and who look like you and who sound like you since audio plays are a thing now work. So please become our patron. We have three levels Like you can start with a dollar and that's like my favorite level because it means that every person can contribute. We have a $5 level and a $10 level. And then if you want to give us some more money because you are super rich, go for it. Thank you. But regardless of the level that you become a patron at, you get all the benefits. Did you see that Roberta Pereira said she loved our newsletter? Yes, I saw. Hi, Roberta Pereira. I love you. Thank, thank you for loving Woke Goop. We love yes. it, too. Thank you. So, yeah, you know, we make our, you know, we make our best. We do our best not to send you like some lame, really boring newsletter. We add actual new content and bonus stuff to the newsletter. And we have some very cute patron, uh, and we have some very cute patron posts, which means that we are just not giving you like garbage. We are putting more of us and we are investing our time, our souls and our baking time. Well, deep baking time, so I don't bake into giving you extra stuff because we just have so many things going on here and we're going to give them all to you. Like Walter Mercado, mucho, 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 mucho amor. And I love, and I love our patrons who just, they're not signing up for more stuff from us. It's because like they like our writing and they want us to continue to write and podcast and produce things. It's like, it feels considering it feels like we're being commissioned by our audience, our fans, to create things. And so that's been that's been giving us a lot of purpose during this time. So thank you all for supporting. And if you like our podcast or, you know, our writing on our website, tokentheaterfriends.com, then please share it. You know, tell other people to support us. If you don't have money, tell people who do have money. 
review our podcast, you know, subscribe to our YouTube channel, all that stuff. Things that we, the things that we talked about on this episode or every episode you can find on our website, tokentheaterfriends.com. Again, theater with an R-E. We should really make one. May We should really get a theater with an E-R URL, probably. Why? Smart. Just like, redirect. Redirect. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe that's smart. People... Yeah. Well, we'll talk about this more offline. This is a two-person ship, people. We Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. We're just figuring out as we go along. And it's cited one degree outside, so please be... Please bear with us, because we have no ca- we have no Casper mattresses, we have no Squarespace, we have no what's the other thing that all the white podcasts have? An Audible? We have no Audible. An we Audible. Have no, yeah, we have none of those. Oh yeah. Stuff. Though we've been though we've been told we should get in contact with Audible, so that's like on my to do list. I love to Audible. F- place. I know. Trying to figure out all of this is a job. Yeah. But we're happy to do it for, for all of you. Be our Casper mattresses and let us lay on your love. <laughs> all right. On that corny note, thank you. Love you all. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.